You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Our text for today, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. So if you have your Bible, please open there. If not, just follow along in the screen and I'll read. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So why? Why was the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Christ? You could answer that in one word. And the word was reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's a beautiful word, reconciliation. But it's a word that has a pretty broad range of meanings. If you talk to an accountant, reconciliation means making one set of accounts agree with another set, right? It's a, ah, that's great. I mean, I mean that's, that, that's, that's enough to, to, you know, make an accountant happy. You know, the, the, the books all, all agree. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember the days when we had to balance our checkbooks at the end of the month. And it was so nice when you get the, the balance in your checkbook agreeing with the balance on paper, particularly if the bank said that you had more money than you thought you had. But now, take that same word reconciliation and think about it from the point of view of a marriage counselor. Right? Well, what, what is that person thinking when, when they think of reconciliation? Well, it's taking a husband and wife who have been at odds with each other, in conflict with one another, and seeing them come together as one. It's interesting that both of these ideas of reconciliation are present in the text that we have here in Colossians today. And I hope that you will see that as we go through it. Both of these ideas are also the result of Christ's work on the cross. Uh, We sang about His death and His resurrection. Through His death and resurrection... Christ made peace. This was his great peace mission. He made peace between God and man. But not just that, but there is a a sense in which, as we read in verse 20, that God through Christ will reconcile all things to himself. All things. Christ opened the way for the reconciliation of all things. This is a cosmic type of reconciliation. It's universal in scope. It's not talking about just the elect 
who will be reconciled. Or, or, or even all humanity. But all things, it says that, all things in heaven and on earth. In other words, the whole of creation. And that raises the question, in what sense does God reconcile all things? Well, there are people known as universalists who will use passages like this to teach that everyone will eventually be saved, even the devil. But obviously that view is contrary to what we read in other places of Scripture. So what then? How is it that God was reconciling to himself rattlesnakes and scorpions and Gila monsters and Palo Verdes and Saguaros? What, in what sense does God do this great work of reconciliation through Christ? Well, let me remind you that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, remember the rubric that we use every Sunday? Redemption, or sorry, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. After the fall, God appears to Adam and Eve and the serpent, and announces the judgment. When he comes to Adam, the man, he says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. That's why you never hear about a weed shortage, right? Because, because the ground is cursed. You plant good crops and vegetables, and instead what comes up is weeds. That's a result of the curse. Romans chapter 8 teaches that creation itself groans as if in childbirth. It's waiting, just waiting for God to remove this curse that has bound it. One of the glories of the New Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 22 is that there will be no more curse. That's what we're talking about when we speak of the, the, the reconciliation of, of the earth, right? There's, the curse is going to be removed. At Christmas time, we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And another verse goes on to say, He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. You say, okay, okay I get that. I see how God is reconciling the earth by removing, removing the curse. But, but in what sense can the devil and his demons be said to be reconciled to God? Well, apparently the answer to that is that Paul was referring to the restoration of all things that Peter spoke of in his sermon. Let me read you a verse or two from, from Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter speaks that, uh, that Christ uh, was appointed uh, by God. And it says that heaven had to receive him, that is Christ, until the time for restoring all things. There you go. Restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The restoring all things. The ancient, uh, ancients used this word in, uh, in an interesting way. The astronomers 
in ancient times used this very word restoration to refer to a time when the heavenly bodies completed their orbits and were back in their original positions. And likewise, the reconciliation of all things means that the time is coming when the entire creation will be restored to its original place of submission to our sovereign God and to its sovereign creator. It does not apply, or it does not imply, I should say, uh, a universal salvation. It's bringing everything back into the proper order. Let me give you a quick illustration of, of how the word reconciliation can be applied in this, in this sense. Uh, when I was young, I loved sports. I still love sports, although I've never been a great athlete. If I had been a great athlete, I definitely would have been a professional basketball player. Uh, in fact, I only lacked three things to keep me from being a professional basketball player, and those three things were size, speed, and talent. Uh, other than that, I had everything I needed. The will was there. But at some point in my life, and it wasn't very uh, long in coming, I had to reconcile myself to the fact that I, I'll never even be able to, to dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal, <laughs> much less become a professional basketball player. Being reconciled to, the, to, to that fact, it, that's the way that Satan and his demons are going to be reconciled to God. Do you know what the Bible says in, in Philippians 2? This is another one of Paul's great Christological hymns, this great hymn about Jesus Christ. And it speaks about Jesus Christ in his humiliation and then his ensuing exaltation. Theologically, when we speak of his humiliation, we mean from the time of his conception up through his burial. And then his exaltation is from his resurrection all on through into eternity. This is what it says. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Humiliation, right? But then what it goes on to say, therefore, this is the exaltation part, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day Satan himself will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is how God reconciles all things through Christ. This is the universal reconciliation that is spoken of in verse 20. 
But as you come to verse 21 and following, you'll see that it gets now personal. It moves from, uh, from the future hope to the present reality. The, the reconcili of all, reconciliation of all things is in the future. But your personal reconciliation to God, if you're a Christian, belongs to you now. God, through Christ, has reconciled you to himself. This is a very personal type of reconciliation. Have you ever been watching an interview, say, with a celebrity? And the celebrity will say something like this. If I had my life to live over again, I wouldn't change a thing. When I hear something like that, I think, how stupid can you get? I mean, really, all of us have plenty of things that we would love to change about our past. All of us have, have sins and failures and mistakes and things that we would love to go back and change if, if we only could. Of course, we can't do that. I mean, listen to, to, to how we once were. Verse 21 says, you were once alienated and hostile. In mind, doing evil deeds. You may not have thought of yourself as an enemy of God, but that's what you were. That's what I was. But the good news of the gospel is that the beauty of your Savior fully covers the ugliness of your past. His light eradicates all of the darkness that was within you. We who were formerly God's enemies have been made his friends. The Lord Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But God's love, you see, was even greater than that. As the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 5. Very rarely will one man Die for another. Though for a, a very good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. And that's what we all were. But by his death on the cross, he made us his friends. That's what the reconciliation is. Much beyond the broader perspective of restoring us to our original place of submission to our creator. Christ has chosen us to be his beloved bride. The wedding feast of the lamb is coming. And Christ is going to Accept us as his bride. Spotless, pure, blameless, radiant, above reproach. In my experience as a pastor, I've done a number of weddings. What I love at weddings, uh, I think my favorite moment of the wedding is when the bride comes down the aisle. 
And the bride's mother stands up, kind of the cue, everybody get up, you know, look. And everybody's looking at this bride. Everybody except one person. Over on this side, there's a lady who's the mother of the groom. And she's looking at her son because she wants to see the joy in her son's face as he sees his beautiful bride coming down to be his own. Oh, the father is looking at his son's face as the son receives us. A glorious, radiant bride. That, friends, is what our reconciliation is about. This glorious promise, the text goes on to tell us, is conditioned on our continuing in the faith. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. I have to be honest with you at this point, that verse really scared me when I was a young Christian. Right? Because I knew that there were many times in my life that I wavered in my faith and, and, and that, that I hadn't been as steadfast and sure as this, as this verse would indicate. And I was frankly worried that I would lose my salvation. What I did not understand at that point that I do understand now that my faith is not dependent upon myself. It's dependent upon God. You'll find this throughout the scripture. Paul says, for example, in Philippians 2, work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation, right? Work out your salvation, right? There's a difference, right? Uh, as a little girl, I, I heard one time in Sunday school said, you can't work it out unless you got it in. And that's true, that's true, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. You can't work it out unless he's working it in. Okay? In that very same book of Philippians, uh, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Your faith was birthed in you by the gift of God. He began this good work in you. And He is the one who is carrying it on to completion. That's why you can be so confident. That's why Paul was so confident. That's why he said right before his death, I know whom I have believed. He wasn't confident in the fact that he had been an apostle and he had done all these things for the Lord. No. He said, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed to him against that day, against that coming judgment day. I have a Reformed Baptist friend who comes to Uganda sometimes. And he spoke in our chapel one time at African Bible University. And he, he put this truth about as 
concisely as I've ever heard. He said, preservation is a fact and perseverance is a necessity. Preservation is a fact. Christ will not lose any of his sheep. But perseverance is a necessity. He ensures our salvation by the never-ceasing work of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. Many people in the part of the country that I hail from think that they're Christians because at some point in their life they responded to an invitation and maybe walked an aisle or made a public profession of Christ, a public profession of faith in some, in some other way. It's not unusual at all to, uh, to run across a person who hasn't darkened the door of a church in years, uh, who rarely, if ever, reads the Bible and prays, whose lifestyle is not appreciably different from the unsaved people around him, and yet he's still convinced that he's going to go to heaven when he dies. You know, such presumption will one day be horribly exposed. Uh, Jesus said, many people are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this wonderful stuff in your name? I'm paraphrasing. But he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, if you don't continue in the faith, you're not really saved at all. John wrote, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, because if they had been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. You have to continue in the faith. But the good news of the gospel is that those of us who truly belong to Christ can be assured of our salvation. We will continue in the faith because he never ceases to do his good work in us. The hope of the gospel that Paul mentions in verse 23 is firmly fixed in the heart of the believer. Some people in this city of Colossae, where Paul was writing this letter, had heard the gospel, but they said, okay, we've heard that, but we're ready to go deeper than that now. I think Paul might have answered this way. You can go deeper in the gospel, but you can never go deeper than the gospel. We, too, need to seek nothing in addition to Christ and the gospel. But we need to grow deeper in the gospel and deeper in love with the God who gave it.